Exodus chapter 18. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eleazar, for he said, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and all the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord, who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh, and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came and all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood round him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand round you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only weigh yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Let them serve as judges for the people at all times, but let them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter, because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. 
he chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. Difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. Thank you, Claire. Do keep that open. Let's pray. Father, that um, passage reminds us that your word is sometimes hard to know how to apply, to understand. We need help from teachers. And this chapter, in lots of ways, is hard to, to understand and know how to apply. And we look to you, please, for help. May your spirit help me. May he help each one of us to understand. May he press your word home to our hearts, please. For Jesus' sake, amen. I looked at one person there. At least one person here, I think, enjoys reading books on business management. Not many here, surely, would enjoy such a thing. But I have a hunch that one person here might enjoy such books. And maybe that's you. A chapter like this seems rather exciting. It's like a sort of Midianite management consultant's handbook. This is Jethro's Tips on Delegation. It all sounds very interesting to most of us. It seems rather irrelevant, perhaps. Why is it here? I've wrestled with that question this week. Why is it here? Because we've seen over the last number of weeks that this book is about something massive and wonderfully important. The Lord is revealing what it means for him to be the Lord, showing us what he's like, what his character and purposes are. He is forming for himself a people, and he's going to show them how to live as his people. In that context, this, this chapter seems a rather strange little interlude. I mean, in recent chapters, we've had the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. We've had the miraculous provision of manna in the wilderness and, and water from the rock. The end of the last chapter, which we, we, we might have covered this time, but we haven't, um, is the lovely story of uh, the Amalekites, the first battle the Israelites fight having left Egypt, and their first victory. It's a lovely story with Moses on the hilltop, arms aloft, supported by Aaron and her, as wonderfully God wins a battle. The chapter after this one, we'll get to next time, they arrive at Sinai, and there it's the awe-inspiring scene of God meeting Moses on the mountain, not in a burning bush this time. Now, amidst thunder and lightning, and fire and smoke, trumpet blasts and earthquake, awe-inspiring scene. And then in the middle of all that, we get this chapter, which seems very ordinary, very mundane, just a, a family reunion. And certainly my temptation was to want to sort of skip over this speech, or at least to, to focus on the bit I could have covered, which was the, the battle of the Amalekites, which is a lovely story. But I told myself, when I'm tempted to skip over something, Probably it's something I ought to be careful to listen to properly. But that's what I want us to do. There's only eight verses actually given to that battle with the Amalekites. A whole chapter given on this reunion with Jethro. And it must be important. Amidst the 
after that noise of battle at the end of chapter 17 and all the thunder of Sinai in chapter 19, here's a sort of quiet moment. And maybe it's like when the teacher suddenly drops their voice. We all start listening all that little bit harder. Maybe a little bit of that here. What we might have skipped over, we need to be careful to listen to. I said it feels a bit like an odd interlude, a bit out of place. But actually, in various ways, which I'm not going to go into, it's very much tied in to the immediate context and actually the, the, the bigger picture of the narrative of the book. So certainly it has been very deliberately and carefully placed here. It's a pivotal moment in the book, a hinge. It looks back and looks forward, looks back to all that God has done, how he has rescued them from slavery. It celebrates the work of God. And then it it looks forward, too, to what is about to happen, the giving of the law at Sinai, and how now, as God's people, they are to learn to live under the word of God. This chapter is a bit of a hinge, and it's in two halves, two conversations between Moses and Jethro. In the first, Moses is telling Jethro all that's happened, and we see how Jethro responds well, wonderfully well. And then the next day, another conversation, this time Jethro giving some advice to his son-in-law, and again, Moses seems responds well. So two halves. We'll have two headings, just so we know where we are. A gospel to be shared and a burden to be shared. Okay, so first, a gospel to be shared. That's the sort of verse 12 verses. We've not heard of Jethro, actually, since chapter 4 of the book, when he gives Moses, his son-in-law, his blessing to go back to Egypt. And Moses, we're told, took Zipporah and his two boys with him. But then verse 2 suggests that at some point, clearly, he'd sent Zipporah home. And we're not told when that happened or why it happened. There's all kind of questions we'd like to know the answer to. It may be that they've happened very recently, that Moses learned that the the Jethro was in the neighborhood, quite nearby. And rather than rock up with two million other Israelites, it would be rather sort of push his hospitality, he just sends uh, his wife back for a little family reunion. We don't know, but, all, but we, we can only speculate. What we are told, though, which is obviously a more important thing, is we're reminded again of the names of Moses' two boys. Verse 3, one son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I've become a foreigner in a foreign land, and the other was named Eliezer, for he said, my father's God was my helper, and he saved me the sword of Pharaoh. Those two names tell Moses' story. And now they also tell Israel's story. They tell of what God has done. And that very much is the focus of this first half of the chapter. Up to now, in each chapter, we've been hearing what God is doing, sending plagues, providing manna, defeating enemies. Strikingly in this chapter, in a sense, God doesn't do anything. Rather, we're reminded of what God has done. That's the focus. So when Moses has greeted his father-in-law, they go into Moses' tent and look at verse 8. 
Verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they'd met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Back in, in chapter 9 of the book, God says to, to Pharaoh this, I've raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And strikingly, when, when it says Moses told his father-in-law what God had done, it's actually that same word, proclaimed, and the commentaries uh, all tell me that surely it's a deliberate echo of that verse. Here is the first fulfillment of that promise. Jethro, a representative, if you like, of the nations, hearing, having what God has done proclaimed to him. Moses tells him of the rescue from Pharaoh, that amazing deliverance, the Passover and the Red Sea, and then also the daily deliverances there had been since from, from different hardships. Moses shares what God has done. He shares the gospel. And maybe there are things we might learn from Moses. His focus, not on himself, he doesn't say, you see this old shepherd's crook. Do you remember I used to use it to look after your flocks back in the day? You should have seen the things I've done with it since. The plagues I, I called, caused to fall, the seas parting, victories won. But no, no, none of that. The focus, not on himself, all on what the Lord has done. Psalms tell us to declare the wonderful works of the Lord. That's what Moses does, declares the wonderful works of God. Of course, now as Christians, we have even more wonderful works to share with our world, all that the Lord Jesus has done for us. So we might learn that from Moses. Notice, too, he doesn't hide the, the hard stuff, the difficulties they'd face, the things that have made them grumble and moan and doubt. End of that verse 8, he told them about all the hardships they'd met along the way and how the Lord had saved them, how the Lord had, had been utterly faithful to them. But Moses shared the gospel with Jethro, and maybe there are lessons we might learn from that, but I don't think that's the primary lesson for us. I think especially we're meant to notice Jethro's response. It's a striking contrast to the Amalekites at the end of the previous chapter who'd, who'd come and waged war on the Israelites. They'd lifted up their hands against the Lord in opposition. But here's another Gentile, non-Israelite, who wonderfully responds very differently. He comes and greets Moses. And when he hears what God has done, we're told, verse 9, he was delighted. He's full of joy. He praises the Lord, verse 10. He responds with faith, verse 11. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who treated Israel arrogantly. Joy, faith, and, and worship. Verse 12. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. 
and for all kinds of reasons. I think that's a very significant moment, actually. We've been told that the reason they were leaving Egypt was that they might offer sacrifices to the Lord. And actually the first sacrifice we hear offered to him is offered by this pagan priest. Well, formerly pagan, we should probably say. He's a believer now, welcomed and included in the people of God, to, to eat together as a sign of, of fellowship. It's not just fellowship with Moses. Of course, Moses accepted him. They were family already. But all the elders of Israel, representing the whole people of God, eat with him too, welcome him and include him. And the Lord as well. They eat in the presence of God. In a few chapters' time, there's going to be a very special moment in this story of Exodus. After confirming the covenant in chapter 24, we read this. 24 verse 9, if you want to turn on to it. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. It's an extraordinary moment, a wonderful moment. It really symbolizes what this whole redemption, what this covenant was for, that this people might enjoy fellowship with God himself. Actually, before we get to that moment, we get a little preview of it here. Only this time, in chapter 18, there's a Midianite there as well. I think very deliberately it just signals that God has bigger purposes, actually. He wants the nations, too, to share in this, to know him, to, to fellowship with him. That's what God had told Abraham. Yes, Abraham was to be blessed and his family. Also, through him, all nations would be blessed. And so here, right before we get to Mount Sinai, when formally this people become God's people, and he will say to them, out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Wonderfully, that would be true. And yet, firstly, just to see that God has bigger plans than just for them. He wants to draw all nations to himself. So in, in Jethro, we're to see ourselves if we've responded as he did to the gospel. It's a wonderful thought. Moses or Jethro wouldn't have heard of Australians or Koreans or Sri Lankans or Canadians or lots of nations. Brits, I mean, who'd have thought of including Brits? But God did. And in Jethro, we are to see ourselves. That's the bigger purpose. God has a plan to draw all peoples to himself so that with God's people, we might feast in his presence. This rather mundane scene is a little signpost pointing us to the day when people from every tribe and every nation will gather around the throne for that great wedding banquet. banquet. And so we're to learn there's a gospel to be shared. 
there may be lessons in terms of what we might learn from Moses about how we might share the gospel too. But I think chiefly it's here to remind us that it's to be shared with all people. The gospel is for all people. Jethro's joy should be our joy. Jethro's faith should be our faith. Jethro's worship should be our worship. Not burnt offerings that we're to offer, but ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. So a gospel to be shared, I think it speaks of that first half. And then the second half of the chapter speaks of a burden to be shared. So the next day, verse 13, the next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood round him from morning till evening. And Jethro asks what he's doing, and Moses explains, verse 15, the, the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and in instructions. These people have been saved out of slavery in Egypt. They're rescued, but they still need help to know how to live as God's people amidst all the muddle and mess and conflicts of life. They've left Egypt, but they've taken their sin with them, their, their, their folly, their failings with them. And one thing the rest of the book is going to teach us is that we, we need the word of God to guide us so that we know how to live as his people. Especially that need is about to be addressed in the coming chapters at Sinai with the giving of God's law. But even with the law, with God's decrees and instructions, the second half of the chapter implies we need a teacher to help us understand them, to know how to apply God's law to the mess and muddle of, of our lives. Jethro tells his son-in-law, verse 17, what you're doing is not good. There's an echo there of Genesis 2. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden? Oh, when we've been told of all the things that God has made, how they're good, 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 very good. And suddenly we read there was something not good. It wasn't good for the man to be alone. And similarly here, Verse 18, you and these people who come to you will only weigh yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. You'll burn out. Your people will get fed up and lose patience with you. So, verse 19, listen now to me and I will give you some advice. It's a striking moment. Usually when Moses doesn't want to know know what to do in this book, God tells him directly. God speaks to him. But here, God guides him through the wisdom of his father-in-law. Father-in-law is not even Israelite. He's a a Midianite. And maybe that's just a reminder that we don't have a monopoly on wisdom. There is much we can and should learn from the world about many things. Of course, we listen to scripture first and foremost. Actually, we need to listen to friends. We need to listen to parents and in-laws and brothers and sisters. Listen to our GP, all kinds of things. God guides through them too. So Jethro gives his advice. Halfway through um, verse 19, he says, 
you must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. First things first, he says to Moses, be clear about what you must do, what your particular role is. But then he goes on, as much as you can, share the burden. So he says, find capable people, verse 21, men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain. They'll have different capacities, and so give them different responsibilities. Some might take charge of thousands, some hundreds, some fifties, some tens, but share the burden as seems best. It's a simple lesson, and no doubt, for some here, it's a very practical lesson you need to take on board. Maybe some here at risk of burnout. You're trying to do too much. And this very simple advice is advice you need to take. What are the things that you must do, and what are the things that you could share with others? How could the burden be shared? Good advice. And yet, I'm sure this passage is not simply here to tell us that, to sort of keep some of us from burnout, important though that might be. There's more to it. And I think in part we're to see the, the great need of God's people for help to live under God's word. We need teachers, people to help us live it out and apply it in our lives. That was true then, and of course it's true still. We need people to teach. We need to help each other apply God's word to the muddle of our particular family life or work life, whatever it might be. We need a Moses. And of course, Moses in large part points us to the Lord Jesus, shows us our need of him as our teacher. One thing this story shows, though, is, is Moses' limitations. That This was too much for him. And that's a note that struck, actually, in the previous story, the battle with the Amalekites. Moses is told to hold up his arms during the battle, from morning till evening, like here. And he gets tired, like here. It's too much for him. He needs people to help him, Aaron and her, to hold arms aloft. The story's reminding us, Moses couldn't do it alone. He needed support. There were limitations in him. Now, his limitations, in part, make us marvel all the more at the Lord Jesus, the perfect Savior and Lord that we have, one who never grows weary or tired, one to whom we can bring our every need, one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are to be perfectly found. And yet also, today in the church, I think there is a lesson we should learn about there being a burden to be shared. Our perfect shepherd has given under-shepherds and he's called each one of us to play our part in sharing one another's burdens, telling us to teach and admonish one another, to encourage and serve one another. There's actually a similar scenario to this 
chapter in the early church, Acts chapter 6, where the apostles are being swamped with trying to do everything, trying to do too much. And they recognized it wasn't good, and they said, we must give ourselves particularly to the ministry of word and prayer. Guard that priority. Other things we must share the burden. And uh, they appoint seven people, godly people, to share that load. Interesting, the thing the apostles commit themselves to are, are, are very similar to what Jethro says Moses must do. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him as a ministry of prayer and teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they have to live and how to behave. There's the ministry of the word. That was to be guarded. But in lots of ways in church life, it's a burden to be shared. It's why we have all our different kinds of small groups. I mean, looking at, at all these people here, I meant to lead this congregation. No way can I properly pastor and encourage each one of you. It'd be impossible. And often I feel that burden very keenly. But it's a wonderful blessing to know of the different groups and how they are working, how within groups there are people pastoring together. You're one anothering as it should be. Not just in groups, actually in lots of ways in church life. That's how it should be. Playing our part, helping each other apply and live under God's word. That we know the word of God is going to be absolutely crucial to living as the people of God. That's partly what this teach, what the following chapters are going to teach. This chapter just reminds us we need help. We need to help each other in that. There's a gospel to be shared and a burden to be shared. Maybe each of us just might, might need to think, how could I play my part better? Is there a way I might serve that I'm not serving at, at the moment? Helping get the word out. Maybe there are ways I can encourage and support. Maybe just our conversations over coffee. How could I use that more to help one another apply God's word to our mess and muddle as it is? As Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Let me pray and stop. Father God, we thank you for, for Jethro. And we thank you for how he speaks of your concern to welcome the nations, to welcome us into fellowship with you. May his joy and delight more and more be our delight and joy, his faith, our faith, his worship, our worship. And we pray, too, that in ways, maybe lots of different ways, we need to apply his wisdom of sharing burdens more widely. Help us to know how we should do that, how we might be part of that, for your name's sake.